And lo, for the earth was empty of form and void, and darkness was all over the face of the deep. And we said, look at that fucker dance. And so we watched as the form embraced the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 131 of Embrace the Void, where there is no separation between leading and following. I'm your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is someone I've formed, I suppose you'd say, an unlikely friendship on Twitter, um, and someone who I find it valuable both to agree and to disagree with. I think this conversation has a great balance of both, so let's dance. My guest this week is Iona Italia, co-host of the T for Two podcast and a frequent contributor to sites like LetterWiki and Arrow. Um, Iona, would you like to say hi to the void? I would. Hello. Oh, it's good. It's a deep void. And it's. It, I'm just going to correct you and say that it's Ario. Ario. Excuse Ario me. Ario Magazine. A R E O. That name is the. It, it's named after. Um, Areopagitica, the the um, the hill in Athens where they had the debates, and mm. the um, th- the piece that John Milton wrote in defense of free speech, which was called Areopagitica. Also, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting. But I should know that if did- I wasn't more terrible at names. <laughs> but we didn't choose that name. It was Malha Mali who founded the magazine who chose that name, mm-hmm. and I have to confess, the name has been the bane of my life. Because the number of people who spell it wrong. Oh, interesting. I was wondering if it was because it's very similar to Eon Magazine, which is another often philosophical um, project. Right. There's that as well. There are people con- confusing it with Eon, and then there are people also who are spelling it like the chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. And we were we were retweeted by one of my idols, uh, Darren Brown, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I thought this is wonderful um, promotion for the magazine. He was really glowing about the magazine, but then he spelt it Aero. <laughs> oh, well. Take what you can get, I suppose, right? Um, well, thanks so yeah. much for coming on. I was really, I'm happy to have you on. I, this is uh, a fun topic that sort of came about as a result of something you had said earlier on Twitter. But before we get to that, I was thinking we was a little bit more uh, in the weeds. I was thinking we could do something a little um, more light and fun to get us started, which was um, I'm, I'm aware that you wrote a book recently on tango called, I think, Our Tango World. 
and it's about specifically Argentinian tango. Um, and I'm hopefully, I assume at least everyone is familiar with like uh, the red light song in Moulin Rouge and that character. But I guess I was curious, maybe if you could tell us some about uh, Argentinian tango, what attracted you to it? Um, you know, some interesting thing about your research that you would that would surprise folks about the nature of tango. Uh, sure. So I've actually written two books. I was commissioned to write uh, two two volumes of this book. Um, and so the first one is called um, Learning and Community, and the second one is called At the Malonga. The Malonga is the um, tango event. Mm. So being at the Malonga is being out dancing tango. And I... I don't have a very exciting origin story where tango was mm. concerned. I have always enjoyed dancing as a hobby. Mm. And I I was going through a kind of painful breakup and I decided what I needed to cheer myself up was a new dance form. So I was looking around for something and I, I discovered tango. Um, what were you doing before I, tango? I did. So I danced contact improv for years. And I also danced, um, I did um, contemporary, I mean, not professionally, none of this professionally or anything like that. I'm not even sure I know um, what contact improv means. I know what like improv class oh. looks like and I know how to make contact, but is that like sort of free form, like swing? Or yes. We... Um, it, no, it's nothing like swing. It's, okay. it's this, gosh, it's really hard to explain. Um, it's a it's a completely freeform dance, and they usually dance it to silence or to some kind of hypnotic drum beat. It's an extremely hippified thing to do. Mm, all right. <laughs> um, and um, I I think what I what I and many other people um, loved about Contact is um, so is is the kind of connection because you. Um, you dance mostly with another person. You're always uh, touching some, uh, you're making contact between some part of your body and some part of their body. And it can be almost any part of the body in any position. So there are some technical things that you have to learn uh, when you're lifting people um, or even throwing people and things. You have to avoid certain stuff, like you, you don't want to tangle yourself up around their leg or something that will trip them up. That would seem but, bad, yeah. But you have this improvised dance together, which grows out of seeing what kinds of shapes and, and dynamics mm. you can create with your, with your two bodies if you're not restricted to approaching each other, standing up face to face. It's kind of the opposite of tango in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. So, so yeah, how is it the opposite of tango? Tell me, tell me the rules of tango, sort of short and sweet. Right. So the tango that, that many people are familiar with outside Argentina, when they hear the word tango, it, and that includes the kind of tango that is in the Moulin Rouge scene that you mentioned. Okay. That is ballroom tango. And... Uh, pretty much everyone, well, I'm going to say 99.9% .9 of people who dance Argentine tango absolutely abominate ballroom tango, including me. <laughs> Splitters. <laughs> I've, 
I'm usually a liberal about such things, but I do think ballroom tango should be illegal. <laughs> so, you, so you hate that when people think of tango, they think of the Moulin Rouge? Do you that, that, I, that I, make you really angry I, by referencing that? <laughs> yes, I hate it. Um, I'm so, sorry. That's okay. So the ballroom tango, um, if you see people dancing that, they're leaning back from the waist mm -hmm. um, in this very uncomfortable, very stiff kind of pose with these painted on smiles or with this, with these kind of artificially fierce uh, expressions mm -hmm. and doing this really corny kind of sexualized stuff. Um, I mean, tango is very intrinsically Erotic, I would say, the dance, but it's not, but I can't stand the pasted on kind of campy, um, fake eroticism that is, uh -huh. that is in, in ballroom. And so tango, the Argentine tango is a social dance, is, uh, it's completely improvised. And it's not danced to, uh, you, you can't dance it to the kind of music that is done in, in ballroom tango. Um, it doesn't have a, um, you're a musician, right? So you, I think you will understand this, but it doesn't have a clave. So there's no, um, tango has a very, very straight underlying 4-4 four, four rhythm, or traditionally it was written in 2-4 for mm -hmm. historical musical reasons, which are too technical to get into here. But it, the feel isn't a 2-4 feel, the feel is a 4-4 four, four feel. And it's just like um, strong, weak, strong, weak. Um, and dancers dance to every other beat. So um, mm. musicians count things twice as fast as dancers do. So we walk on one and three, one, three, in this kind of completely even pattern throughout. So there's no quick, quick, slow pattern mm. at all. Interesting. And as a result, you don't need to... Um, and the tango music is is quite sophisticated, and I think it it's I mean it is popular music. It's not like classical music, mm -hmm. but it's in salsa or in samba or in many other kind of popular music forms that are used for dance. You have um, the the strong beats of the melody coincide with the strong beats of the bar, and that's not true in tango. The tango hmm. melodies are very heavily influenced by Italian opera. Hmm. And so they, there are often melodies. There's usually at least two melodies in tandem. So there's a kind of counterpointy sort of feeling to it. Count, mm -hmm. uh, we call them counter melodies in tango. And then the underlying rhythm is just this very, very straight 4-4 four, four rhythm um and so as a as a result you can well, i mean i want to jump in first and note that i'm not in fact a musician i can tr oh, i can sing okay. sometimes when i have to but i do not identify as a musician or musically talented in any way and i maybe caught about half of what you were describing there um and i was thinking maybe for folks who are not sort of well-versed, what are features that they could look for that they could notice with their eyes that would signify sort of good or great tango dance? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I got a little carried away in, okay. in the technical geeky stuff. Um, so um, one thing is that in 
Argentine tango, we dance a lot of the time. And some people, um, depending on the, the specific style, all the time in a close embrace. And the embrace in tango, in Argentine tango, it looks and feels as close to a real life hug as possible within the constraints of having to having to move freely. Hmm. Um, so it's really, you're really like reaching around and, and holding the other person. Your face, your faces are very close together, um, relative heights permitting, maybe the, um, or maybe touching. Hmm. Um, you're touching all through the kind of um, upper part of your chest area and you have your arm wrapped around the person like you were hugging them and you hold their hand. So it doesn't have a kind of hold like that, but it's very close. And this very close thing is, I think, what enables tango dancers to do very subtle movements, um, very well coordinated and together. So that's what you should look for, This this that the couple look very together as they're dancing. And to do that improvised and without a set basic step pattern. The basic step in tango is just walking, just walking in the tango style of walking in this close embrace. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is also probably the main thing that attracts people and makes people want to dance tango. The main thing that they fall in love with is the feeling in close embrace. It just feels very romantic and snuggly. It's a complete, it's a, to, I mean, it's a, like a total ox, oxytocin overdose for 12 <laughs> minutes. Fair enough. Very anti-void there, I see. Yes, it's very, <laughs> just the way that we hold each other for dancing is very lovely. It mm. also means that the dance has a very steep learning curve at the beginning because it's quite hard to move in that way. Is someone leading still? Is it still yes, like someone one is leading? leading? Yeah. Okay, but it's more like a very subtle kind of leading. It um, it's very subtle. So the leading is done by the preparations you make in your own body to make the movement are going to um, be uh, translated through the embrace to the other, to the follower, and she will res respond intuitively. So it's really cool. because we're because we have so much body contact. It's really easy to. Uh, communicate things. That's, that's actually um, ties in with Tai Chi to me, actually. There's a lot of listening work that's done in Tai Chi where you keep contact and try to, you know, follow without accidentally turning into leading or something. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, there there's also quite a lot of places where the woman can, 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 can be quite assertive. Mm -hmm. So um, the woman or the follower, it could mm -hmm. be any um, sexual constellation, obviously, nowadays. Um, but there are many places where you can... The leader indicates, initiates movement. So they indicate directions. Um, and the follower sort of completes movements. Hmm. Because you can't, you can't end the movement till your follower is also there with you. And as a result, there's a lot of free space there for followers to play with. So you can be quite assertive in doing what we call decorations. 
So expressing the music with little subtle movements of legs and feet. Um, and you can also influence the timing quite a lot. Um, and um, I, I, I particularly enjoy that. So there very, is a, uh, there's a kind of two-way. Yeah, that's very different from the way I think we sort of imagine it or think about dancing, broadly speaking. I feel like that's a nice way of, of framing it with one person setting up and the other person completing in that kind of way. Yeah, uh, leading and following in dance is very subtle. And I think that especially because of this, these awful cliches that have built up around ballroom tango and around kind of stage tango as opposed to the social form, mm -hmm. um, people feel that it's this angry kind of sort of even mm -hmm. verging on violent or it has this sort of BDSM feeling. It's like a kind of dom the woman is dominated by this macho. Except when the Adams family guy. does it, right? They they do. Sorry? Except when the Sorry, Adams what? family except in the Adams family, right? They do it properly <laughs> in terms of uh, uh sharing between the two of them. I haven't seen that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it still looks like the same. Like if I think back, it looks like the ballroom kind of description that you're giving, but it has a lot more uh, gender equality, let us say, to it. Um, oh, right. So, yeah, whereas actually it's very gentle. It's very hoggy. And mm -hmm. it's very, um, I think somebody said it was much calmer than they were expecting. It's not this sort of jagged, abrupt changes of direction move i mean some things are more there can be more dramatic um changes of of yeah. movement but it's um um it's really got this very snuggly snuggly feel well i'm sold it sounds a lot better than what i thought it was who would i look at if i wanted to go on like twitter or youtube or something and like try to watch someone who you feel like is doing the right thing well uh, so I would go to YouTube and um, my favorite, we'll put this in the show notes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll do my best so, to remember. Yeah. <laughs> or my someone will two, remind me. My two favorite performances um, are uh, Carlitos and, no uh, and Noelia. So that's Carlitos Espinosa and Noelia Hurtado. Um, and if you look up, Freiburg Tango One, so they're dancing to a song called uh, Grisel. Mm -hmm. um, I love that performance. And another one that, which is in a rather different style, but I also really love, is um, Sebastian Jimenez and Maria Ines Bogado. Mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoy all their performances, but the one that I think is quite magical is they won a competition, um, it's called the Mundial. So if you look up their video as the Mundial winners on mm -hmm. Argentine tango, you will you will find that. And they're dancing in quite a, a very small area surrounded by people. And I should say that most performances are improvised in tango. They're mm -hmm. fully improvised. Um, and if anybody wants to watch me dancing, you <laughs> can see... Um, I, I'm not dancing professionally anymore, so I'm just a hobby dancer now. But I, my, the last performance I did was two years ago in Bombay. And if you look up my name and Manish Darmani is my partner, um, 
you'll you'll see us you'll see a video of, of us dancing great and for all the people like me who barely caught any of that uh i will, will definitely <laughs> do my best to have that in the show notes for you um, um so yes yeah. well if you look up me dancing and mumbai then i think you'll find also um okay you'll find my one great so switching songs here a little bit now um since that that's interesting but the reason i really wanted to have you on was actually something that you a joke you'd made on twitter a little while ago which was in response to a letter wiki that i was writing about free will where you sort of remarked how weird it is that um, you and I have almost identical views on the non-existence of free will, but have sort of often strongly divergent political views. And I wanted to have you on to talk about that some more because I, I think, you know, neither of us believes that like, a, you know, a view of about free will necessarily has to correspond to certain political views. But I think we both probably also believe that your views about lack of free will should have some impact on your political views. So I'm curious to see where we overlap versus diverge on this stuff. But I guess first, let me ask, um, what is your current, how would you frame your current take on the problem of free will? And how did you sort of get to that place on this issue? So um, I have, I mean, I hold a lot of contradictory ideas in my mind about this at once. That's fair. Because on the one hand, I think it is, I find it quite impossible. And I think it probably is impossible for almost everybody to act and speak and think as though I don't believe in free will. So, you know, in my everyday life, I am... Um, I'm always thinking in terms of there being free will. Um, and as I think I might have mentioned to you, okay, yes, uh, so I'm not an atheist. I mean, I am a very vague and not at all devout um, agnostic, but um, I feel that there is a, what is the word? There's a duty, I think is the simplest way of putting it to, to follow the Zoroastrian teachings, the basic teaching at least, which is the humata huktva huvareshta, the kind of famous phrase, which is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Hmm. And that, of course, implies that I believe I have free will to do that. Um, and of course, at the same time, I don't actually think that I have uh, free will. I just can't so see any point where free will could kind of reside. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's all luck all the way down. It's luck where you're born, what your genes are, how your personality develops. It's, um, you know, it's luck that I am not, it's luck that neither of us are, I hope, <laughs> psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I wonder on some days for myself, but yeah, go ahead. I think that... On, a, on the deepest level, none of us can help being who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, on this, I think, I, I think we're in full agreement. I'm on the luck all the way down problem. I do want to mention that I, I still hold the belief that you ought to follow that particular path that you were just describing, that like, there's an objective value to right actions and right deeds, and that it doesn't depend on 
the question of control in this kind of way. Now, the question of control, I think, does come up with how responsible we hold you when you fail to act correctly. But I don't think it changes the value of the correct actions when, when you are lucky enough to achieve them. Right, yes. I mean, I feel that both um, uh, both praise and blame, it's, it's natural. And I think there's no other way for us to live together socially than to act as though we believe in free will. And I think there's no other way to live our lives as individuals than in acting as if we believe in free will. Um, But I just want us to be kind of cognizant that at some deeper level, this is a fiction. um, Mm -hmm. And that should give us pause when we are praising and blaming people for things that inevitably... Um, are are really neither their fault nor their merit, and yeah. I fundamentally I think that's everything. Although mm-hmm. I completely understand why we also praise and blame people think for things, I understand that totally, um, and I can't see a way around that. But I do think that that is that actually there's none of this is under our control. How frequently would you say? In your day-to-day life, because you're you sort of on one the one hand, you sort of keep saying, um, you know, we always act as if people have free will, but you're also saying that we should temper that judgment based on this other fact of the matter. I'm curious, do you experience like, you know, you're about to get angry at somebody, and then you remind yourself like it's just luck that they're they're this way, and I should not like get caught up in a in a fight with them over it. Um, do you feel like you? sort of tweak your your levels of praise and blame, perhaps, as a result? Um, That's a good question. Actually, um, so I only ever get in fights with people online, (laughs) but I I just, um, I I am very, very emotional, and I get really easily carried away um, online in discussions. Um, because I'm both very emotional and also a coward. So it's like the perfect um, place to... <laughs> At least you're honest um, about your your vices, right? Um, right. It's, 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 the, it's the kind of perfect space for, for me to get into these kind of fights. And I wish I didn't. Um, and um, so it's not, a, it's not really so much then. I, I think it's more that I tend to think in terms of bad ideas being like viruses that can infect you. Mm -hmm. So somebody who is a Hindu nationalist or jihadist or a uh, white supremacist or something, I think of those people in a very real sense as ill. Yeah. I think they have been infected. Yeah, the the Buddhist kind of disease model for suffering. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, we should tackle the ideas, but we should, wherever possible, be compassionate towards the people. Um, and I don't really, of course, I'm a hypocrite about this, as yeah. it's. I find hypocrisy is unavoidable, <laughs> at least for me. But that's that's what I aspire to. I would say. Yeah, and I was always—I mean, not always, but like—it's given me a sense of a sense of sympathy for like Christian claims, like you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Even though I don't agree with them about what sin is or which things in particular are sinful, like I get the 
the principle behind it that we can separate out the actions from the individual and that we can view the individual as sort of um an, another victim in the in the result of these actions in some ways um i'm curious since you brought up the online and the and the getting getting angry and stuff do you feel though that like bringing awareness to that part of yourself knowing that you have that kind of luck allows you sort of paradoxically to change that luck a little bit to if not you know, not get angry, at least sort of recognize in a conversation, I'm getting worked up in this conversation and it would be more productive for me to step away from that conversation or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, I have got better at this over time, mm -hmm. um, which is probably hard for you to imagine. <laughs> but No, I um, believe you. <laughs> I think that, I think that my, so I, 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 opened my Twitter account quite a long time ago, but I used it only to message my cousin Zubin, who was, because he was, he works off in offshore oil drilling, and mm -hmm. we were messaging each other on Facebook, but for That's some adorable. reason, Facebook didn't, didn't work well on the rig. So we started chatting on, I opened a Twitter account so I could chat to him on Twitter instead. That's like the, the most function. benevolent, benign reason for anyone to ever start a Twitter <laughs> I know. And um, I did kind of post things, but I didn't really understand how it worked. Nobody mm -hmm. was following me or like 12 people were following me for about a year. And nothing I posted ever got any response or <laughs> reaction whatsoever. It really was void-like in that sense. So I thought... I don't understand how this works. And then um, after that, uh, Zubin and I find other means to communicate and I stopped using it. And then I kind of started back up using it about, so one, two, three, gosh, four years ago, I guess. So it has mm -hmm. been a while. Mm -hmm. And it just, I, it just very quickly became... And briefly, I had an anonymous account, and then I changed it and put my own name there. And it just became a dumpster fire so fast. <laughs> um, it it was, does happen fast, yeah. It was absolutely terrible. It was so bad that, so at one point, Jonathan Haidt started following me, and he still follows me, which is very lovely. Um, but he, he actually wrote to me. He wrote me an email. He, like, did an intervention. He said, I'm following you on Twitter, and I really like some of your ideas, which was very flattering to hear from him. And later I interviewed him for my for my podcast. Mm -hmm. And he said, but your behavior is really, he didn't say it like this. He was much kinder. I am summarizing, but he said, your behavior is really appalling. You need to like get yourself together. That's <laughs> like, interesting. Um, because I mean, I, I see, I was having this debate earlier today, actually, that I see like two kinds of folks on Twitter, that there are like folks who live down, not, not this, not that, um, I, I think this, I think you fall into the second camp, right? The first camp is folks who actively live down to the stereotypes of Twitter and then sort of justify that behavior by saying, well, it's Twitter. And then there are folks who actively try to not live down to those stereotypes and it can be very hard but um, I do think that it, it's interesting to realize to find out that height falls into the. I mean, I guess I guess a heterodox kind of guy, he would at least be 
more sympathetic to the civilized, the civil approach to these kinds of situations. Um, yes. Well, I felt it was a very loving thing to do. I mean, I've uh-huh. never met him and I don't know him. The only conversation we've ever had is when I interviewed him for my for my podcast. So um, I, you know, I have no personal connection to um, Height. I think he's, he is, he's friends with um, Helen Pluckrose, who is my editor-in-chief mm-hmm. with whom I work at Ari Magazine. So we have this indirect connection. But I thought it was a very loving thing to do. It was like, it was, you know, the, the intention of it was very, very clearly to, to make me aware of how I was coming across in public online mm-hmm. and to help me to, to ready that and come across better for my own sake, for my reputation and my own peace of mind and everything mm-hmm. else. And um, I really tried, but I backslid very majorly, I think, at some point quite soon after that. But it got better. It got better. Um, I think that between four years ago and now, my I've, I've, I've had a few like just relapses, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like every few months I have just one night where I'm really depressed and frustrated and angry and I just get into these pointless and really vicious fights on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, they have got, the, those episodes have got a lot fewer and further between. And my usual day-to-day behavior on Twitter is also much better. And, I mean, I, I think this is a particularly yeah. interesting conversation because I, I think there, <laughs> some of my listeners are people who you've gotten into these massive fights with on Twitter. Um, and I'm, and, and like, you know, I feel genuine sort of um ambivalence about how to approach these kinds of issues and engagements because you know i i don't think that it's good to engage with people that way and i think that you clearly agree that it's not and i'm sympathetic to the people who end up bearing the brunt of that sometimes and like a part of you know i can hear in the back of my head their concern that like um am i uh, going too easy on you about these kinds of things. But I mean, I guess tying it back to our free will discussion, right? I think it seems like both of us think that a takeaway from the the luck view is sort of compassion and humility and forgiveness towards ourselves and towards others who do things that are not ideal, especially when after the fact they can acknowledge that it's not ideal. That that's That's the best we can hope for in a lot of situations. Um, yes, yeah, so I mostly fight with, well, I I don't have long fights with people on the right, because usually when I get into a fight with somebody on the right, I, I block or mute them almost right away. Um, and so all my bitter fights are with social justice leftists, and I would say about half the people. Why is that? Why don't you block the social justice leftists too? It's interesting. I think that I, I think that I fundamentally... I don't, um, it's okay if I swear on this podcast, right? Yes, you're totally fine to swear. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't give a shit what some crazy MAGA person or some Hindu nationalist thinks about me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care. But I clearly do care what people on the social justice left think about me. That's interesting. And, um, I I sort of, I want, 
I want them to love me, but I'm also not prepared to compromise on any of my views. <laughs> I just think it's so, funny that you want them to love you. And I wonder if that's like indicative of wanting to be, be I mean, I don't know. I, let me, let me, let, we, need to, we need to tie the politics into this to understand, I think, to analyze what's going on here. So like, how do you identify, self-identify politically speaking? Are you a leftist who's mad at the other parts of the left? Are you... I don't want to put words in your mouth. How would you how would you frame yourself to someone who doesn't know you? Mm. So I would say that I am an old fashioned um, economic leftist, and I'm yes, and I'm I'm very impatient with many aspects of social justice ideology. Um, so I'm I'm in the American primaries i obviously don't have a vote or anything but i do find american politics fascinating and i am supporting bernie and i've been supporting bernie since last primaries mm -hmm. um if i had a vote i would vote for any of the uh for any any of the um candidates for whoever became the nominee let me just make that clear i don't have a bernie or bust philosophy at all is that because you think that the right presents a more existential threat than the left Oh yes. I mean okay. I would I would I would vote for any of the nominees over any Republican um nominee if I if I had a vote in the States, with the possible exception of Tulsi, but she's not really in the running anymore. Um and the reason I wouldn't vote for her is because of her far right, Hindu far right connections. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about if she is, if she were ever in the corridors of power, what in the states, what impact that might have on my friends in India? So I don't think it would have much impact in the states. I mean, if somebody put it, is she going to declare the Beef Council a hate group? Um, but mm -hmm. I, th I think it might have knock-on effects for India. Um, so, with the exception of Tulsi, I would vote for any of them over um, over any Republican. Um, pretty much any Republican nominee I can think of, um, not just Trump. But with Trump, it seems to me kind of irresponsible um, not to um, not to vote for one of the one of the for whoever becomes the nominee, because if we're talking about Bernie or Bust, you you a bust has happened. We have mm -hmm. seen what bust looks like, and it's ugly. <laughs> so um, so. Um, my option, my preferred option would be not bust. Okay. So it sounds like what, I, what I'm taking away here, and feel free to correct my terminology. It sounds like sure. you might be somewhere in the range of what sometimes people refer to as like classical liberal or sort of moderate uh, liberal left, someone who is more progressive on economic issues. You didn't talk quite as much about sort of cultural issues in there. So I'm curious sort of where you stand on the usual list of important cultural divides between the left um, and the right. And if there's anything in, in your sort of constellation of views that folks would consider more towards conservative or would describe as regressive if they were, if they were being critical of your views. <laughs> um, well, so um, I never know what the term classical liberal means exactly. And so it means different things to different people. Exactly. And a lot of people uh, use it to mean libertarian. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, like that, yeah. 
yeah, I'm definitely not a libertarian in in any economic sense. Um, in fact, I would like big government, a strong welfare state. I mean, I am a capitalist. Okay, so you're an economic Excuse progressive, me. as I would say, right? You're an economic leftist, so, you know, potentially right. I mean, socialist I, adjacent. I think, yes, I, I um, I would say I'm a socialist, but when I say that, Americans understand that to mean communist, and that is not what I mean. It's okay. Most of the um, listeners of this show will understand what you mean. Most right. of the listeners of this show are socialists. <laughs> what I mean is um, that um, I think capitalism is necessary for wealth generation, and I don't fully understand all economic issues, and so therefore there um, there can be a lot of good intentions in economics which work out badly. So, for example, I'm not certain it's a good idea to have a minimum wage because but on pragmatic grounds, it sounds like on pragmatic grounds, precisely. It's an empirical but, debate for you whether or not we should have that. But you would right, like if, if, because, if you found that the minimum wage helped people a great deal and didn't cause a bunch of harm, you'd be for it. Exactly. But if, for example, it's causing a huge amount of unemployment, mm -hmm. which wouldn't otherwise be there, mm -hmm. and it's stopping people from being able to take on flexible part-time jobs that they want while they're raising a child, for example, or something, um, if there's some other disadvantages to it of that kind, and the same goes for rent controls also. Uh -huh. So economically, think, it sounds like you and I are on a very similar page. Um and probably, I think that's probably yes. partly because of the free will stuff, right? You feel like because it's luck, whether somebody ends up economically well off or poor, they should be given help either way, right? They, people need support. Um, I, I think that we should support everybody who is struggling. And there will inevitably be some abuse in the system, but I'm, mm -hmm. um, which we should try to guard against. But I'm willing to... No system is perfect. So I'm willing to put up with a certain amount of, a uh, certain number of freeloaders mm -hmm. mooching off the system um, in order to get the help to the people who need it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is anybody who is genuinely struggling for whatever reasons they are struggling um, or for almost whatever reasons, let's say. Uh -huh. so, so it sounds I, like we're on I, the same page here then for the most part. Right. I'm, I'm sure we are. This is so, a really yeah. classical, this is a very classically um, left-wing view, and I support Bernie for that for the, for the that reason. Okay, so let's um, see if we can find some disagreement here before we run out of time, right? <laughs> like, socially, where do I'm you feel sure like you can. and I diverge? Where do you feel like we have strong disagreements, and do you feel like any of those disagreements could be, could we get some purchase on them by, um, r r by discussing our views on free will? Yes. So for one thing, I I really dislike intersectionality. Hmm. So I think that's going to be one point of disagreement um, because I think that we need to move as quickly as possible. And I think we can move in that direction by, um, by actually partly by changing our attitudes towards and the idea that your sex, your sexuality, and your race should be completely unimportant. Um, so we need a radical equality in how we treat people, in how we talk about people. Mm -hmm. And we should help those who are struggling economically or with their health or 
in whatever other way. But we should direct that help to individuals who need it rather than to groups. So, okay, so I let's, don't let's think, talk about this some. I think right. this is actually a really useful point. Um, so when I understand intersectionality, to me it's a descriptive account of basically exactly what we were just saying earlier about luck. That like not only is everything about you a result of luck, but the luck can have complex interlapping inter interacting factors so one kind of bad luck can combine with another kind of bad luck to produce much much worse luck it seems like whereas certain kinds of good luck can sort of ameliorate mitigate other kinds of bad luck and that understanding how these different kinds of luck interact is what is sort of the work of intersectional theory now there's a separate um a separate prescriptive claim there that we then need to make use of these distinctions and these different intersecting um, forms of luck in creating systems that will bring about equity, that'll bring about greater fairness overall. And I, I, I do tend to think that we do need some sensitivity to these intersectional um, features on a, on a prescriptive side, but even if we don't, even if you don't buy that side of things, I'm curious if you at least agree descriptively the the intersectional view of how human luck plays out is an attempt at you know an attempt at greater nuance and complexity. Um, well, yes and no. I can see how it's a, an attempt at greater nuance and complexity, and the the one of the original one of the first kind of essays I think that. Crenshaw wrote, which was about the car factory where they employed, um, mm -hmm. I may be getting this wrong because it's been a while, but the car factory where they employed black women, but um, but not black men. Mm -hmm. um, and no, it was the other way around. They employed black men, but they discriminated against black women. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a place where an intersectional analysis, quote unquote, is helpful because um, you can't really say they were racist because they were happy to hire black guys. And you can't really say they were being sexist because they were happy to hire white women. And the reason was the men were employed down in their factory, on the factory floor, putting the cars together, mm -hmm. where they were, where they, they didn't they, do, they didn't care about their skin color, whereas the women were saleswomen and were interacting with customers. And mm -hmm. so they didn't want black women to be the face. They didn't want black people to be the face of the company. But because of the way the um, job choices of men and women. Yeah. Well, the the gender assigned roles of men and women, right? Um, right. The way they, they would put it. Possibly also their choices and interests. Potentially. That's, that's Potentially. possible. Um, but um, so, so one other thing that I just want to note there, you said they're neither sexist nor racist. I would I would sort of flip that a little bit and say they're both sexist and racist, right. but yes, they have workarounds for certain members of those groups in certain contexts. Right. I would say whether or not they're sexist is a slightly separate question, because then we'd need to know how many men applied for the which jobs and how many women did um, and how they responded. So I think that it's unproven that they were sexist, but it's definitely racist. 
Well, and it's certainly um, plausible that they are. I mean, we, we can say whether or not they as individuals think women shouldn't work manual labor and men shouldn't be customer service, right? They were sort of enacting and, and reinforcing those kinds of stereotypes. And so they were engaging in a system that was um, unequal with regard to gender because it was segregating the genders into various roles, um, maybe, but for that, I would need to know that they actively discriminated against women on the on right. The I, don't, I don't know about this particular floor. factory, but I, we certainly right. know that, like, over the course of human history, there's been plenty of that kind of discrimination. Oh, of course, yes, right. yes, of course. Um, I think that what this does show is, and and I can also see how that is could be seen as an institutional rather than a personal racism, because you can imagine some guy who's on the hiring committee whose personal feeling is, I, I know this sounds like the kind of some of my best friends are black thing, but who's, who's kind of has, has no personal the gr grudges against black women whatsoever, but his boss needs him to make X amount of profit. Mm -hmm. And he knows that the customers are racist who don't want to be served by black women. So, Mm -hmm. that's constraining his choices. So you can see how it may not be about individuals' feelings, but about a kind of self-perpetuating system. Yeah, and that's um, the view. I mean, that's the point of, like, uh, a lot of the social justice stuff that I actually find that anti-social justice folks have a hard time wrapping their heads around, which is that they they see injustices as being the result of specific dislikes by specific people towards other specific groups rather than systems that pull everyone along in these kinds of reinforced inequalities even if particular individuals don't you know don't strongly have a preference one way or another they feel compelled to stick by the the, the stereotypes that are perpetuated by you know if you really aren't going to get as many customers, for example, then like you're pressured into acting that way. And so it, it it's a corrupting influence from the outside in on all of us, it seems like. Well, so um, this is something that I that um, Liam Kofi Wright has been talking about recently on Letter with Andrea mm -hmm. Lynn Lewis. And it's one of my favorite conversations on Letter. I recently had to recommend to the judges of our impossible conversations competition who who i thought the the best conversations were mm -hmm. and um and i did tell them that uh, i mean in case in case they want to take that into consideration i'm not on the judging panel at all i have no say over this but i did tell them that that was actually my favorite conversation at the moment it's my my personal number one with uh, um, Leanne, with Liam and Liam Andrea. And Andrea, yes. Yeah, I actually and was just on her show, and I agree, it's probably one of my favorite letters on there, especially his response to the um, the concerns about specific individuals' problem. I think he has a really brilliant way to address those kinds of concerns in like the third or fourth letter or so. Right, I I I think so too, and um, I love Liam, and I have to say that. Given, uh, especially given what you know, what I've told everybody here about my Twitter history, I'm especially grateful for people on the social justice left like you and Jeffrey Sachs also and Liam, who nevertheless continue to patiently like chat to me and who, who haven't kind of made me into an enemy and a bogeyman, who keep the lines of communication 
open. And that's not because of me, that's because of them. So I'm going to just give them a shout out now. But um, but nevertheless, I totally disagree with Liam, <laughs> even though okay. I really, I like him a lot. And we've met in person also. He's a super lovely guy. Um, but I think that social justice is, um, it is not being used as a kind of academic theory, um, which you can subscribe to or not, and it's intellectually interesting to discuss. Um, it is has become now activism. And when it comes to activism, you need to judge those things by the effect, by the way in which mm -hmm. ordinary people are using them, by the way in which activists are using them, and by the way in which the effects that they are having on society. I absolutely um, agree. So that's why, although um, I can see the point in this, in this, in in that kind of theoretical level, mm -hmm. but um, what I see happening in the activism is this confusion between levels of analysis. So it is one thing to be looking at a societal level and talking statistics. Um, and here's where I might be more um, here's where I might be more more kind of allied with people who are slightly more right leaning, even though I don't share I don't have a conservative bone in my body. I can't stand I can't stand it when people are prescriptive about behavior that is suitable for men and behavior that is suitable for women. That really like gets my goat. But I do think that there are some very striking average differences in preferences between and personality types between men and women, average, with plenty, many outliers, exceptions, etc. Um, and this is purely descriptive. There's nothing meritorious about being a stereotypically feminine woman or masculine man or, or vice versa. Um, but so I think that we can do those kinds of analyses and we can do them for racial issues as well. So we can look and see, mm -hmm. we can analyze by race how well different groups are doing in society. And we can see that African-Americans still have this kind of, there's still this achievement gap for them. And I do not ascribe that gap to some kind of racial character, um, which I don't really believe in that concept anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, um, I ascribe that gap to a perfect storm of things for which no, um, none of the individuals in the community are responsible and which are largely to do with his, his which are largely historical, okay. um, which are the knock-on effects, the long-term knock-on effects of a, a really shitty history. Um, and those effects do take generations to wear off, or it can take generations to wear off, so, combined with some unhelpful cultural stuff within and without the community, both. Um, and of course, also some people's uh, racist attitudes, some per, uh, some individuals' racist attitudes. But that's so, a societal so, uh, level. Sorry, I need, I, need, I need to jump in here with some questions here at some point. I just yes, want yes. to like, frame <laughs> this a little bit because you're, you're throwing a lot of stuff out here. And it seems like a lot of what you're saying is essentially, I agree descriptively 
with a lot of what the social justice left says, I'm concerned maybe prescriptively and practically what the implications are for those kind yeah. of things. No, no, so, no. I don't I don't agree even descriptively. Because I agree you, you just You just described the history of social injustice that I think most social justice people would point to when explaining why there is this continuing gap between the races if there is not something innately better or worse about one race over another. Yeah, I absolutely. Although I do kind of kind of believe in um, uh, in innate average differences between the sexes. I don't really believe that in race. I think race is quite unimportant. Um, in that regard. Um, so, but so let me ask I, you a prescriptive question then. Yeah. I, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, there's some evidence, there's some data that suggests that the wealth gap between whites and blacks in America is not closing and cannot be closed by race blind redistribution of wealth down to the lower income brackets from the higher income brackets. If right, so that, that's, that's where I disagree with both parts of that statement. Well, well okay, but like, like, let's assume just for the sake of argument for a second here that the data became ironclad, that this was, in fact, that you were never going to close that gap by race-neutral policies. Would you at all consider, which, which would be more valuable to you, avoiding a non-race-neutral policy or correcting the injustice in that situation? Um, so, I I I think this hypothetical is just wrong <laughs> because well, but it's, it's I, I don't perfectly think that's conceptually true. possible that like it is true. Like it is. I mean, like it's an empirical question again, right? Whether okay, whether whether um, like um, race blind uh, affirmative action is actually sufficiently effective in a variety of circumstances, and there's a lot of like places you can point to like universities where it seems that fully race-blind methods didn't correct for the problem and we needed this more preferential kind of affirmative action on a variety of economic fronts. So uh, it doesn't seem like it's even an implausible hypothetical. So I guess I'm curious what where you would go in that situation. So I would say a couple of things. I, I mean, first of all, I am opposed to affirmative action because I think it's discrimination against Asian Americans um, and it is unfair to individuals. Um, I would say that, um, let me think about it. Um, I think that one fundamental thing is that I am more interested in um, stop, uh, I'm more interested in safety nets than I am in equality. So um, I would like equality of opportunity. Um, I would like to see. I would like to see nobody in really bad circumstances. So I want there to be a kind of floor, but um, a net below which you're not not going to be able to fall i don't want to see isn't anybody that, isn't that like a Ill. rough equality of outcomes though not a i mean you're not you're not arguing for like a radical equality of outcomes but you're arguing for opportunity but well, outcomes... well no but it seems like you're saying even if you are given an opportunity and it goes terribly for you we should still secure for you a certain basic level of outcomes as well yes a minimum level yes absolutely so okay. i would like to see less suffering mm -hmm. um but if i have to choose between that and more equality, I, I, I choose less suffering over more equality. So, so 
let me ask you this then, right? If you choose more suffering, sorry, sorry, if you choose less suffering over equality, let, let me concede for the sake of argument that affirmative action is not equal, right? It's not just in a sense, but it would reduce suffering, right? If I could show you mathematically that like affirmative action would reduce net suffering for everyone involved, would you then be in favor of it? Um, I don't think you can show me that, but um, I think I, 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 I think I probably uh, will continue to be not in favor. And this is a very, um, it's, this is a, the one, I think it's the one issue in which I differ from my Indian liberal friends, where we agree very strongly on um, being against Modi, on equal rights for Muslims, on vision of, on the secular democratic state. But in India, this is a huge issue. And I, I think that it's possible that um, affirmative action Affirmative action on economic grounds is still almost certainly necessary in India, where you have people who don't, who can't do their homework because they don't have electricity. But um, I think that affirmative action on grounds of caste is has been more damaging than helpful. Um, so yeah. I, I guess I just feel I like continue in, to oppose it. Yeah, I feel like in principle, you know, affirmative action on the basis of poverty is not fundamentally different than affirmative action on the basis of race if your goal is to you know if your goals are similar in terms of producing equity or reducing suffering whatever your justification is mm, right you can mm. give a similar argument for both kinds of things and it's just then an empirical question of whether it actually achieves your desired goals in that kind of situation i i think that uh if you have enough poverty that you're actually handicapped from doing the things that you need to do um, you're in effect handicapped from doing the things that you need to do in order to enter into university, then I think there is an argument for affirmative action there. Um, if it's just your race, but there's no way in which you were kind of, pre you were prevented, um, then I, I, I feel that those are not the same thing. Um, I, mean, I mean, what ideally, if it's during a time when the race does prevent you in the sense that like, you know, Paul Robeson trying to go to Rutgers and such, like there was real animosity yeah. preventing this and like he had to overcome these kinds of, you know, various forms of social and systemic animosity against his very presence in these places. Well, in that sense, it, if that's the case, then yes, I'm in favor of affirmative okay. action. Okay, just curious. I mean, again, it ties back to our free will kind of question where like luck mm. is luck is luck to me. And if it's uh, socioeconomic mm. luck or um, racial luck or whatever you want to call it, right? Like to me, what matters is reducing the kinds of luck that are intersecting to cause harm and increasing the kinds of luck that will intersect to cause flourishing. Right. And I think that the way to, I, I, mm -hmm. I personally think that the way to do that is an individual-centered, needs-based approach um, that is not an identity-based approach. Um, that's my <laughs> that's my conviction. Yeah, fair enough. And I think that I I my view is understanding people's needs and understanding how to achieve those needs involves necessarily understanding the complexities of their identity and in sometimes catering to the complexities of 
those identities. So taking, for example, um, you know, religious preferences for wearing a hijab or something, I think that in order to understand the meaning of that to the individual, you have to understand their cultural identity and respect it enough to see it as worthy of, you know, part of being part of your moral calculus in that kind of way. Um, but I think we, I think, you know, I, I imagine we could probably go on on this forever, but I think it's really interesting. Um, and I appreciate you saying that you would sort of, at least in principle, consider it in those kinds of circumstances, even though I, I under, fully understand that empirically you think that um, the kind of I, situations that I'm envisioning are not where we are currently or where we are likely to be or something like that. So. Yeah, I think we, we need to get, get away as quickly as possible from judging people based on immutable or quasi-immutable, because I know you can you can mm -hmm. kind of change gender, you can't change biological sex, but you can change gender, which is socially more or less the same thing. Um, those immutable are kind of quasi-immutable characteristics. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we should uh, we should really move towards um, treating in individuals equally. And that means not demonizing any group, any group. Um, and I think that that also, that doesn't mean that we have to respect views that are prevalent within a group. Um, mm -hmm. So I get into a huge amount of trouble for, for opposing circumcision, for example. And I apologize. I'll bring up. I'll, I'll drop this topic immediately because you are Jewish. <laughs> no, um, it's okay. But, I, I don't take it personally. Um, but I, I get into huge trouble for that because this is the group believes in this. But I don't think that groups have rights. Only individuals have rights. And for me, this is a. It's also. Uh, Jews are not the largest group who do this. It's the U.S. Mm -hmm. Americans are the largest group. Yeah, we, uh, we, we pass it along to them as part of our Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> can yeah. you please, can you do something? Can you just, you know, put put the Undo first that. Jewish um, president on the in the White House while you're at it, while you're doing your conspiracy Oh, thing, yeah, you'd please? think if we if we really had enough control, we could be, we could be managing the Democratic Party a little better than we seem to be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, now that we've dropped several open hand grenades at the end of this conversation, I do need to unfortunately shift us over because I can't, I can't let you get away uh, while avoiding the lightning round. And I know that you, the, the main reason you wanted to come on the show was to do the lightning round. So um, I think we'll, we'll have to let off for there. And I think there were lots of good things in there. So, so yeah, lightning round time for folks who oh, are. Oh, and we managed, we should just say mm -hmm. that, while we managed to avoid it this time, if people want to hear us fighting about our main point of disagreement, which is free speech, um, they can find that on your interview on my podcast, the other half of this 69. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, yes, and that was a good, great conversation. And it is interesting. We, we didn't talk about our, our the connection to free will there, but I wonder if there is, I think there probably is some influence in my view that like because people are just luck all the way down, that we should be a little more cautious about things like speech. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reopen the can of worms. We're doing lightning round now. <laughs> nope, nope, um, nope. <laughs> so I'm gonna give you a list of things. You are gonna tell me if these things are real or not real. You don't get to hedge. You can't. Uh, there's no third option at any point here. You can um, you can vent your suffering at the end. Let's put it that way. Okay. Are you ready? 
Yes, I'm ready. Okay, I got to check you. Primer question. Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? No. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Real. Free will? Not real. Selves? Real. Genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Real. Morality? Real. Good job. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Real. Gods? Or God, as you prefer? Real. Society? Real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? Not real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Not real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Not real. Causality? Real. And finally, dharmas. Dharmas? Uh-huh. As in the fundamental building blocks of reality or substance or something like that. Oh, it's a um, it's a trap for the Buddhists to make them say yes to something. Right. Not real. Okay. Fair enough. Ooh, you got very serious on that. That's probably the serious I feel like I've ever heard you be. <laughs> trying to, you were you were dialed in on that one. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> you, were, you were not gonna say the wrong answers. You were really I was I was impressed. You took this a lot more seriously when I did it on somebody else's show. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, well thank you so much how do you feel great this was so fun good i'm glad it wasn't too much torture for you um Not i appreciate your mix of answers and i will look forward to your various forms of being canceled for them since you didn't say that nothing <laughs> is real um that means someone's going to cancel you um yeah. so um, am uh, i the first guest to say that god is real uh, no, I believe that you and Liam shared that one. I believe that he right. also was the only thing that he said was real. Um, <laughs> he's still going to cancel you about the chairs thing, but that's fine. Uh, so, Iona, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff one more time? Um, yes. So you can find um, you can find my book, Our Our Tango World, um, my two um, tango books are on Amazon and I also have a I also have an academic book uh, called Anxious Employment which you can find which is about 18th century essayists hmm. and you can find my more recent writing um, I'm writing a my fourth book which is going to be um, about India and you can find some little excerpts that I've made public on a blog called Fire and Vultures on WordPress. 
You mm-hmm. can find my um, political writings mostly if you go to Ario, A-R-E-O, and you search my name, you can find my author page uh, there. I have published a, f- a few things elsewhere, but mostly in Ario. And you can um, follow my podcast, which is called Two for Tea. Um, and you can find Aaron also arguing mm-hmm. with me on that podcast. Um, a most recent episode is with Nick with uh, journalist Nick Cohen. Mm-hmm. And you can follow me on Twitter if you are brave enough. But I am kind of <laughs> horrible on Twitter, so I do, do not warn go you. start fights with her on Twitter. Don't make me come out there. I will be mad. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm really be trying nice. very hard to be a better Twitter user. I'm trying very hard. And I hope that when I move to London, um, I, I can kind of be be a be a better person in every way, including on Twitter. That's yeah. my aim. At Iona Italia, and also I do I really enjoy I do enjoy meeting people in real life. So um, if I'm in your neck of the woods, um, I'm going to be based mostly in London and sometimes in Bombay. Um, drop me a line. And thanks so much, Aaron. Yes, and remember, as a cult, we model good Twitter behavior. Right, we are not part of the problem. We are part of the solution. So, are, are you don't, don't embarrass me out there. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just reminding all of them that they need to be on their best behavior, or they're out of the club. Uh, right, <laughs> right, okay. right. Okay. E- even sure. if it gets us canceled because we talk to people like you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I right. better be on my best behavior now. Thank you, yes. Aaron. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again so much to all of you listening. Just by listening, you support the show, and I really do genuinely appreciate it. And I want to give a shout-out in particular to our new patron, Justin Scurry, and to our top patrons, first of all, our uh, $20 a month patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. CampQuest.org says check out secularwoman.org, which is a good suggestion. Two for Minneapolis Live Show. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and very genuinely, much all the top, so much thanks and support to our $40 tier Lifetime Achievement Award in the Void, Dave Maslich. Uh, Y'all really do make all of this possible in so many ways. Um, And thank you all to everyone. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though in particular iTunes is um, unfortunately helpful. Um, Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you bonus monthly book club content. Um, But most of importantly, most of all, remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 